This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Any home or business can quickly become infested with mold with the introduction of a water source like a roof or plumbing leak. When your home, your belongings, or your business becomes damaged, it's not just about cleaning up the mess. It's about reclaiming your life. And that's why you need to call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline, a licensed, fully insured, affordable, non-invasive solution to solving any water and mold problems. Our team of trained specialists are available with 24-7 emergency service. We will quickly evaluate your problem and give you a plan that will guarantee results. Water causes damage and mold can spread throughout your property in as little as 48 to 72 hours and can produce allergens and irritants that have the potential to cause serious health hazards. So don't waste time. Give us a call now. For any water or mold problems, call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. Call 800-442-7043 today for a free estimate. That's 800-442-7043. 800-442-7043. Reaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back this week to another episode of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. Thank you for joining me. Hopefully, this is a place that you'll find uh, that voice of rationality, voice of reason, an American Muslim patriot who believes not only in the American way of life, believes in freedom, liberty, but believes that it is a Muslim problem that needs a Muslim solution regarding radicalization and the global threat of radical Islam. And it's our time to reform, it's our time to lead the need for deep reformation against the ideas that fuel radical Islamism. And this podcast is my small, humble contribution to face the battlefront of ideas and confront that those areas of thought that need to be addressed week to week and try to bridge that divide, that chasm between the consciousness of Muslims that are in the Islamist mindset versus the consciousness of those of us in the West or those that believe in freedom and liberty. So, a couple things I want to talk to you about today. Later in the program, we're going to talk about conservatism and being Muslim. Not conservatism as far as conservative Muslim ideas or orthodoxy, but rather in honor of CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference that now I'm participating in my fourth one in four years and on whose board I serve. Again, the the issue, though, for reform is not about left or right, conservative or liberal. It's about defeating theocracy, and it's about advancing liberty. So what I do want to do, though, in honor of that, is talk to you later in the program about can you be or what are the defining elements, as far as I see it, of being Muslim and being a conservative, and use the example of a individual that has started a so-called Republican-Muslim coalition to say that that somehow then guarantees her a position in the conservative movement. The other thing I want to start with, though, today is we've talked before about icons, 
the need for reformation within the Muslim faith. And one of my heroes, I've always said, is Thomas Jefferson and his papers on religious liberty. But even before that, there's a paper this week written by Dr. Joseph LeConte, a a professor of history at the King's College in New York City. He wrote a book called God, Locke, and Liberty, The Struggle for Religious Freedom in the West. And he wrote an excellent piece in the National Interest just uh, last week called Can John Locke Save Political Islam? Now, as you know, I'm no fan of political Islam, but I am certainly a fan of John Locke. And a lot of what, and what I love about Dr. LeConte's approach to this is that I think we're finally starting to have the right conversation. I think we're finally starting to not talk about Martin Luther, about deep reforms that need theologians of some kind, but rather understanding that maybe Islam needs its John Locke and its Thomas Jeffersons. And that's what I want to talk to you about in the beginning of the program. So the two things. What is, how can you be conservative and Muslim? How do you define that? in American context, and where are Islam's John Locke's? So, first, Dr. Lacant. You know, he talks about the life of John Locke, born in 19, I'm sorry, born in 1632, and in a time in that 17th century, extraordinarily turbulent times, where theocratic mindsets, control of governments had controlled Europe. Thirty years' war had happened in the centuries before. And ultimately, as Lacan puts it, the problem was not only the enmity and power struggles between Protestants and Catholics, perhaps the Sunni and Shia of today, But despite an official end to the wars of religion and the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648, militant Christianity could still destabilize governments, provoke mob violence, persecute religious dissenters, and create a refugee crisis in the heart of Europe. Wow. I know, I'm not, you know, I have to tell you, I I went into reading this, thinking about it, thinking that, you know, moral equivalencies are fraught, fraught with problems. Yes, there's a lot of differences between what Islam has to go through and what Christianity does. And there's another piece I read on the foreword about the similarities of Christian and Jewish Reformation, and we'll talk about that in a future episode. Right now, I do think there are enough parallels that it's reasonable to make them because in today's world, we are searching for the ideas what the father of liberalism, classical liberalism taught. We are searching for those ideas in Islam and in the Islamic world. And as Lacan says, we can hardly ignore the parallels between Locke's world and our own. The Syrian civil war, the rise of the Islamic state or theocrats, the horrific assaults on religious minorities, the massive flow of refugees from the Middle East, and the widening conflict between Sunni and Shia. You know, as he says, the violence in the wake of the Arab Spring exposed the fundamental crisis in modern Islam. 
that in its depth and its core there was currently in its manifestation of mankind's interpretation of Islam, Muslims who had chosen that path, a culture of intolerance reminiscence of Europe's legacy. So as I tell audiences all the time, I think it's not a moral equivalency here, but rather understanding the time that Islam is in its history. People talk about El-Sisi being a reformer. I don't think so. Yes, he called for the right problems to address the violence within Islam, but he's a military dictator. John Locke was a scholar, a politician, a devout Christian, who sought to bridge those divides. And I think, again, why I see, you know, people say, oh, reformers in Islam need to be deep theologians in order to fix the problem. Reformers in Islam need to have be a hafiz of the Qur'an or understand and memorize the Qur'an to the T. Yes, it's important for the details of those who are going to actually modernize through ishtihad, the sharia, yes. But the tipping point, the organization of reform movements, I think, settles onto a nucleus of liberalism in Islam. And as Lacan says, the career of Locke is central to the story of how the West accomplished a similar revolution. Militant religion and political absolutism had been defeated two of the most intractable problems of the European society. Locke's A Letter Concerning Toleration of 1689, with its singular persuasive power, ranks as the most important defense of religious freedom ever written. And I believe, I've de- and you know, I have to, you all know my work, I've dedicated my life to embodying what a Muslim letter concerning toleration, actually a word I don't like, I, I prefer a Muslim letter concerning pluralism, would be. Locke's ambitions as a religious reformer are sometimes understood, misunderstood. You know, there was a period in which he lived, and that's what's important, in which you know, Glenn uh, uh, Glenn Beck referred to me on his program last time he and I sat and, and chatted in studio that I was the radical, that we had an establishment problem. With, we have an establishment problem within the House of Islam. And you look at John Locke's life, and he lived in a period when Christian norms and observances were still infused in Europe's political and civic life. There was no separation of church and state. He tried to enforce an abandonment of what he saw as attempts to enforce religious orthodoxy that only inflamed sectarian hatreds and criminalized entire categories of religious believers. When we come back, I want to continue this story, the, the great analyses that Dr. Lacan brings, and talk about 
is this possible? Will it be possible in the Muslim world, in the Muslim consciousness? This is Udi Jasseron, Reform This, and I'll be right back. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something. And progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. Reaching the fault lines of today, this is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another segment this week of Reform This. It's always great to be with you. And if it's your first time, thank you. Appreciate the opportunity to join you and spend a little time talking to you about the House of Islam, the need to reform. And if you've listened before, thank you for coming back. I hope this conversation together week to week brings us closer to real solutions, real pragmatic analyses that solve what I believe is the greatest problem that we face, threat that we face in the world today, which is the threat of not only militant Islamism, but political Islam. This is a movement that encompasses and can encompass a constituency that's almost 25% of the world. So finding the mechanism with which we in the Muslim community can come to terms with modernity is going to be beyond essential. So I can't help but but um, continue the conversation on Locke and tell you that it's interesting that if you look at most reformers, Locke himself began with a radical interpretation of the life of Jesus. He argued for a new kind of political commonwealth. Locke wrote, as LeConte recounts, he says, is that every man may enjoy the same rights that are granted to others. He forged an alliance between liberal political theory and a gospel of modern, of divine mercy. And sadly, professors like Jonathan Israel, Professor Emeritus, of European history at Princeton, he ridiculously argued that Locke's defense of toleration was hobbled by narrow theological premises. And I think Lacan's point here is very important because as you can tell, there are those in the establishment that tried to weaken Locke's theological, oh, his theological credentials, if you will, his bona fides. Israel says that Locke produced an ungenerous, defective, and potentially menacing theory. And I will tell you, this is exactly what's happening in the Muslim world. 
is that any of us that decide to take on the religious establishment, any of us that decide to face and ask for the end of the Sharia state, are told that we are ungenerous, defective, and potentially menacing in our theories. And they reach back to the same old men with beards and robes, the misogynists, the honor brigade, as Ezra has called them, Ezra Nomani. The honor brigade funded by Petra Islam, finding their purchase at universities such as Georgetown, which has its Muslim Christian center of understanding. And I agree with Lacant when he says that there are many liberal Muslims seeing Locke as an, as an intellectual ally, a deeply religious believer, a reformer whose political theology could help us confront the crisis of an immodern Islam. He points out that Nader Hashimi praises Locke in, that, in Islam, secularism, and liberal democracy. He says that Hashimi said that Locke's entire effort was rooted not in a rejection of Christianity, but rather in a reinterpretation of it. He concludes that the Lockean campaign was a critical precondition for a more progressive political order. Now, I have to tell you, it's fascinating to read these words. And then when I debated Hashimi, the person who here endorses Locke, he seems to think that the reform has happened. He seems to think that it's just the Saudis that are the problem and that it's just not our role to counter terrorism. Which is fascinating to see Lacant quote Hashimi, and yet Hashimi, when you talk to him publicly, seems to blame so much on the West, so much on certain regimes, and nothing on what we have to do, the heavy lifting we have to do with our interpretations of Islam. So yes, there are some common grounds there, but also a lot of work that needs to be done. Another scholar, Mustafa Akul, in a nod to Locke, wrote a letter concerning Muslim toleration. And he also believes that the Lockean tradition has existed in Islam, but obviously it needs a leap, as Akul says. And I think what really should be learned from Locke is that it is an authentic faith that we're fighting for. You know, I get demonized, as does many in our Muslim reform movement, for not being authentic, for being secular and minimalist or nominal Muslims. And yet people who know us personally know our families, know what we do, how we live, the way I practice medicine, what my families have done for mosques and the communities we've lived in, know that we are not nominal Muslims. 
that it is an authentic faith as we see it ourselves. Not that we speak for other Muslims or, or could ever speak for Islam. Nobody does. But just as Locke, we reject a determinist view of faith. And I think that the deeper issue here is the embrace of reason. Locke called it reasonable Christianity. I think we need to start embracing reasonable Islam. This is what the bottom line is, is for the motion forward. The move forward in the 21st century is for us to begin to embrace reason rather than first scriptural exegesis. Yes, the scriptural exegesis will come, but society is based in reason. And one of the reasons for the success of Locke was that he bridged in his participation in the political, the philosophical, the theological, and the scientific. And I think this is the type of leaders that we need. Those who are just imams focused just in the mosque, yes, reform thinkers are extremely important, but if they're just in those domains, they will not be leading the reform efforts. So when we look for recruits, as you work, many of you, and talk to people in the Muslim community, we need leaders who breach those domains of science, philosophy, reason, and theology. And then the political. So those five areas, reason is the generic one, so the four major areas of science, philosophy, politics, and religion. Not just one, but those who are involved in all of them, I think, are going to contain and embody the solutions for the Islamic world moving forward. Yes, just as Locke stayed true to the Bible in his writings, he might have been a radical at his time, but I think this is what we need, is are we Muslim reformers? Radicals? Maybe we are. But I think time will show that we love our faith, we love God, we love our country, and we're trying to bring the best out of all and abandon that which does not belong. Lastly, what's happening in the Muslim world today? Can we really cite these examples when you have illiteracy rates of 50%? Well, I, I think ultimately the revolutions were part of abandoning the tyranny, the oppression of governments that were oppressively monstrous and military dictatorships, and they still have almost all failed, except for Tunisia. They began as a protest against absolute rule. And it, perhaps, as Lacan says, was born of the marks of a Lockean revolution. But they dissolved into the Hobbesian perpetual war of every man against every man. And we can get into the reasons, be it economic, but I think most of it's military. They were unable to simply win their revolutions. 
and they will continue Revolution 3.0, 4.0, 5.0 until the tyrannies, the tyrannical, are defeated. There is a consensual nature to faith. There is an independence between individuals and God. And that faith must be voluntary, just as society must be voluntary and government must be voluntary. And this is the center of what I think liberalism is and what we need to bring to a more liberal, a-liberal interpretation of Islam. And the key to what's happening in the Middle East, I think, is borne out in what Locke said. He said, it is not the diversity of opinions which cannot be avoided, but the refusal of toleration to those that are of different opinions, which might have been granted, that has produced all the bustles and wars that have been in the Christian world upon account of religion. Wow. So ultimately... Those spheres of influence that Locke reached, politics, religion, society, because he sought to reform not only the religion, but the state. And this is key. This is why the Arab awakening is so important. You can't reform Islam with a static, paralyzed, fossilized government in the Middle East. The two have to be reformed at the same time. A fossilized government with, which tyrannically uses the Islamic State identity for its own purposes will never allow a liberalized religion that, that believes in the supremacy of an individual and equality of individual over the tribe, over government, that the government should be minimalized, that the tribe should be minimalized in order to preserve universal human rights. Locke wanted to protect individuals from the state so that they could pursue their own obligations to God according to the dictates of their own conscience. For example, he rejected the anti-Semitism that kept Jews on the margins of society. He wrote, if a Jew does not believe the New Testament to be the word of God, he writes, he does not thereby alter anything in men's civil rights. He also disparages English laws prohibiting the construction of synagogues and limiting the Jews to private worship. This is so important to realize that enmeshed in the liberation from theocracy in Europe was the defense of the freedom of minorities and the rejection of anti-Semitism. Again, telling us why Martin Luther might be part of it, but the rejection of even Martin Luther's anti-Semitism did not happen until you had governmental reformers, which is so key to the Arab awakening. I do believe this could happen in the Muslim world and the Muslim consciousness led by individuals who are leaders in these areas of the educational, the political, the philosophical, the theological, the scientific. Malala Yousafzai, 
who was shot for wanting to get an education, received the Nobel Peace Prize in 2014, embodies some of those changes that could happen. But key to this change is to find religious justification for political reform. And I would just change Dr. Lacan's title. The title was that political Islam can be saved. No. Can John Locke save Islam? That's the question. Political Islam, I want to see die. It needs to be in the dustbin of history as the evil empire of today. It does not need to be saved. Islamism is the problem. And will always be the problem if you don't believe in theocracy. This is Udi Jasser on Reform This, and I'll be right back. Breaching the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. On the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the Chris Salcedo Show. You've got citizens who are illegals, who can't get jobs because they have no citizenship status. There there are serious ramifications when you don't follow your law, when you make exceptions to your laws. You know, justice is supposed to be blind. You're not supposed to see anything else except for the law. Because when you ignore it, you end up making even bigger messes as we are seeing now. The Chris Salcedo Show. Weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. Thanks for sticking with me and uh, appreciate you listening to what I feel is the only place you're going to find a Muslim that confronts the ideas that need reform that confronts the chasm between Islamism and Western freedom and liberty. This weekend, the Conservative Political Action Conference is finishing its annual meeting. I'm honored to be on their board. This is my fifth conference uh, in attendance. And every year, it is amazing to look at what the so-called mainstream media spreads about the attitudes towards Islam, towards Muslims, that are actually discussed at the conference. And despite me now being there for five years, a devout Muslim who's working towards Islamic reform, a chairman and president of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, I've spoken three different times, brought in different Muslim speakers, including myself, to talk about Muslim reform, including uh, leading feminists and others. There's still this propaganda and lies spread by Media Matters and other Soros-funded propagandists uh, to try to paint CPAC as a bastion of bigotry against Muslims and other false, fabricated lies about the majority of people at CPAC. And I would defy anyone to tell me that there is any difference in the percentage of those who have a negative opinion towards Islam at CPAC than would exist at any other political conference in America. Now, 
I've always been honored to be part of CPAC because as a conservative, I see myself much more a part of the conservative movement than necessarily part of a political party movement. And I do think that the ideas that shape policy, that shape strategy, that is the conscience of much of the political movements, I believe, come from conservative groups and the centerpiece of that to be CPAC. So, you know, it's fascinating that year after year, left pundits intentionally misappropriate some of the writings and activities of others in order to say that this is endorsed or not endorsed by CPAC. And I would ask anyone to go to my the website at cpac.conservative.org and look at my previous speeches there. This year, I took part in a panel on foreign policy strategy and whether this is World War III we're seeing. And again, I'll talk about the conference next week. But what I wanted to spend some time on is it's, it's also a very concerning development that there are some Muslim activists out there who believe by virtue of carrying a shingle or, or identifying themselves as Republicans or as conservatives that somehow that, and if they have enough cash, that somehow that buys them entry into the conservative movement. And again, I don't pretend to have the keys to that, but I would ask, and this is what I wanted to focus on, is as we talk about reform within the Muslim community, and whether you're a liberal or a conservative, the key is honesty. The key is understanding what the political ideology it is that you are promoting and defending. So, you know, listen, I meet every year new Muslim activists that are either college students, libertarians, conservatives, uh, many different folks that come up to me and thank me for my work and tell me that they are Muslims who feel a sense of not only kinship to my work, but try to help us in any way they can. So what bothers me is when individuals like Sabah Ahmed, Sabah runs a group that she titled the Muslim, the Republican Muslim Coalition, RMC. Now the coalition, I don't know what that includes, but at this point, she was interviewed by New York Times in January 2016 and also was in Al Jazeera and claims to have voted for Trump. And yet identifies that her conservatism is natural for her Islamic identity because of two major issues that she continues to exploit. And I find them to be offensive. Number one, she claims that her focus on family values and then she then cites her disdain for homosexuality, and thus I would interpret it that her association of Islam with homophobia then somehow gives her an entry into the conservative movement. And second, her perception that family values is equated with her pro-life position and forget the misogyny and 
honor violence, honor crimes that she ignores, she feels that that thus makes her a conservative. She'll also sometimes cite free market issues and strong national defense. But the issue is this. New York Times cited that she had a $2 million annual budget. Here's an organization unknown before, now all of a sudden shows up on the scene with $2 million annual funding. I'm sorry, but if you look at most Muslim organizations, any of them with any significant budget, aside from mosques, and even the mosques are often foreign-funded, if they have huge budgets. Here's an individual that has very little written publicly. And I would think, at the end of the day, the definition of conservatism is not only just saying you are. It's like saying you're anti-terror or anti-Islamist. But it's proving it by the coherence of the substance of your ideas. Do they stick together or not? Do those ideas fall apart because they have no coherent central guiding principles and fundamentals, or are they real? So conservatism, before we get back to the curious story of Sabah Ahmed, and by the way, the reason I'm bringing this up is she was shaking the trees over at Media Matters, over at other major media institutions, which I think it might not only be her, but her PR team that might include a retained firm. Who knows? But the bottom line is is she's claiming that CPAC is Islamophobic, which is the term she used. She's claiming to whoever might run with her baseless story that somehow CPAC has shut her out. When in fact... Here's somebody that claims to have wanted to sponsor, and yet, what is her ideas? Are they conservative? She has nothing other than her law school paper, which is a diatribe in 9-11 trutherism, out there writing about her positions on core issues, national security approach to the organization of Islamic cooperation, approach to Wahhabism, Khomeinism, her belief about the Muslim Brotherhood ideology, Islamic State ideology, not only ISIS, but Islamic State ideology, her belief about the caliphate and caliphism. These are all issues that we address in our Muslim reform movement. But if an individual is going to purport to be an American conservative, it's not just about being pro-life. It's not about at all. In fact, I find it offensive that you would think that to be a conservative, somehow she believes that you have to be anti-gay. Those are personal decisions. And to say that somehow that becomes a mantra would be would then to, to assume that the Khomeinists who throw gays off cliffs in Iran are somehow conservatives, when in fact they're theocratic barbarians. So... It is extremely telling. Now, again, the Muslim reform movement is nonpartisan, but I feel at home in it as a conservative who believes in liberty, just as others who are liberal and feminists and 
activists on civil rights and human rights feel at home in it. Why? Because our principles are no different than the U.S. Constitution, no different from any reason-based rational declaration regarding universal human rights. It is nonpartisan. There are different approaches. We don't take positions on economic policy, on specific policy approaches, be it abroad by the use of force militarily or passively. So this is not about specific policies, but the question remains when we analyze specifically, and I'll let Ezra Nomani, Raheel Raza, and other liberal Muslims define what they think liberalism or the left principles would make somebody a trustworthy liberal. For example, you know, I'm not going to be the one to talk about why Keith Ellison, who God forbid becomes the head of the Democratic National Committee, but that's what he's bidding for. And we talked about this on this podcast a couple months ago, but God forbid he becomes one. You know, the liberals should oust him as being a marginalized, inconsistent, dishonest liberal, that he has advocated against the gay community, that he has not advocated for women's rights, that he has been too close for comfort to anti-Semites, to theocrats of Saudi Arabia, to make him credible at all as a true liberal. But that's not my argument to make since I'm not an ideological liberal. But in the conservative movement, I am conservative and I feel quite qualified to talk about or marginalize individuals that I feel are not genuine conservatives. So when we come back, let's get into some of the details of what Sabah Ahmed stands for and her so-called Republican Muslim coalition, and how she's actually using that as identity politics and proves she's not a conservative because she's an Islamist. This is Udi Jasser on Reform This, and I'll be right back. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. Any home or business can quickly become infested with mold with the introduction of a water source like a roof or plumbing leak. When your home, your belongings, or your business becomes damaged, it's not just about cleaning up the mess. It's about reclaiming your life. And that's why you need to call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline, a licensed, fully insured, affordable, non-invasive solution to solving any water and mold problems. Our team of trained specialists are available with 24-7 emergency service. We will quickly evaluate your problem and give you a plan that will guarantee results. Water causes damage and mold can spread throughout your property in as little as 48 to 72 hours and can produce allergens and irritants that have the potential to cause serious health hazards. So don't waste time. Give us a call now. For any water or mold problems, call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. Call 800-442-7043 today for a free estimate. That's 800-442-7043. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser, the Blaze Radio Network. 
This is Dr. Judy Jasser. Welcome back to the last segment this week of Reform This. Thanks for sticking with me. And, uh, you know, how is it even possible to define what it means to be a conservative and a Muslim at the same time? I believe so. And I think at the minimum in this ideological debate that exists, not only about conservatism or liberalism, but really in the big picture about what we're talking about in this program is, what does it mean to be a Muslim and conservative? And naturally, there are many of those who, whether it's Dennis Prager who defines what it means to be Jewish and conservative, uh, whether it's any of the evangelical community that talks about being Christian and conservative, I do believe as a Muslim, there are ways to define it. Now, Islam as a faith and history and its trajectory is in a very different place today in the discussion of the separation of mosque and state or church and state and Islam versus where Christianity or Judaism is. Yes, there is a debate, a healthy debate in America about the role of religion in the public place, religious freedom, interference of government in those religious freedom choices. And each of those, many within the movements, conservative, many in the liberal movement may fall in different places on each of those test points, test issues in those cases. But where Islam is today, I believe that the far and away most overriding principle is the Lockean understanding of classical liberalism. If you believe that in a Muslim-majority country, that conservatism means Sharia law, conservatism means the ulama or the scholars or the clerics or the imams controlling the judiciary and deciding that the legal system is not based in reason but based in scriptural exegesis, based in oral hadith and its interpretation, then you are not a conservative, but you are a fundamentalist. You are a theocrat. The conservative movement in America is not about theocracy. We can debate that. I'm sure some people may disagree. But I would tell you that if you look at the the movement that I became a conservative on, it was about originalism. It was about getting back to the principles of the founding fathers who were devout Christians but also did not want government interfering in our personal lives, which made religious freedom that first freedom. So to me, conservatism is a belief in free markets versus socialism. You cannot be a nanny state believer and be a conservative. A conservative. So the Saba Ahmeds of the world, there's no evidence that she's not a socialist or that she believes in free markets. She might say it once in a while. What's her position on Obamacare? These are all very important issues in somebody who is purporting to be a conservative. Second Amendment rights. I do believe for the most part a belief and a strong belief in Second Amendment is a central part of being conservative. I don't know what her beliefs are. She ran for Congress in Oregon as a Democrat in 2012 and got less than 
a few decimal points of 1%, but I'm sorry, this was in 2000, uh, 2011 primary. And then after she loses the primary, she posts on her Facebook page, I never thought I'd see this day, but I'm officially a registered Republican. This is despite having interned for Governor Ted Kolonsky and Representative Earl Blumenauer and having participated in Democratic events for quite some time. Then she switches and says her conservative Islamic values, pro-life, pro-family values, pro-business made it very hard for me to defend myself as a Democrat. She then blamed George Bush's advocacy for waterboarding, just like Obama advocated for drone missiles. Both parties treat Muslims badly, which is why American economy is going to bankrupt fighting Islam. Inshallah, meaning God willing, I look forward to helping foster a better understanding of our faith. And yes, I was banned from the Oregon Tea Party and Washington County Republicans earlier this year because of my Islamic beliefs. But I have to believe there is room for learning. On and on. So, this person is not a conservative ideologically, but simply because she's looking for opportunity politically to make a name for herself. There's a lot of that out there, obviously, in both parties, but right now, somebody who all of a sudden finds themselves with a $2 million budget that can demand entry by large price tag sponsorships into national events needs to be vetted ideologically, and she doesn't pass muster. She actually wrote a paper. <laughs> she actually wrote a paper in law school a few years previous, in which she said, in reviewing the 9/11 Commission report, I discovered several interesting things which lead me to question the whole U.S. government strategy on blaming everything on Al Qaeda and targeting Muslims. It seems to me that if there was a very high-scale involvement by some people in the U.S. government, military, and intelligence to help the 9/11 terrorists. And they created a massive cover-up of the September 11 attacks to fool the American people, get approval for wars in which turned to help the oil and defense industry. That's even more flagrant than Alex Jones. And this is someone who's complaining to national media that she's been not allowed at CPAC because of her Muslim identity. I think you're not a conservative if you wrap yourself in an identity politic, you're not a conservative if, when I debated her on Hannity, listen to the debate on Hannity Radio for 15 minutes, she and I, I was asking her what her opinions are on political Islam. She said it doesn't exist. Islamism. She said she doesn't use that term. She doesn't even know what it is. The Muslim Brotherhood. Oh, they're misunderstood. And this is somebody who claims to be a conservative? And I hope liberals also would not welcome these kind of ideas. And yet, sadly, they turn a blind eye often to them. She then debated Ezra Nomani, a liberal leader, a co-leader, co-founder of our Muslim reform movement, on a PBS clip that was pasted on, posted on our Facebook, in which Ezra asked her about the role of businesses and government in providing maternity coverage 
and respect for women's choices if they were, for example, in a Muslim country to have a baby out of wedlock. And then she claimed that, well, that would be perfectly free in America, but in a Muslim country, that is immoral and runs against Sharia. Wow. And this is somebody complaining that she's not allowed to have a venue to engage thought leaders in American conservatism. She's an embarrassment in those ideas to American Muslims, be it left or right. And I'm glad Ezra outed her on those beliefs. And I hope real Muslim conservatives would out her also. Conservatives look at dedication to the U.S. military, dedication to the U.S. Constitution as primary that we are Americans that happen to be Muslim and not Muslims that demand to be American. So there's a lot of, you know, I think that this issue is extremely important, not only about this one person or her supposedly Republican-Muslim coalition, but as our children and our children's children start to develop an identity of what it means to belong to a party, to belong to the military, to belong to this country as a citizen, that our homeland is America. It's not where our parents came from. The ideologies that we believe in in our parties are not related to our Muslim identity or party politic as an identity Muslim movement. Being Muslim is not a racial identity. I would hope that we embrace liberalism or conservatism in America because of the specific ideas of those movements and not necessarily because we are Muslim. That is the definition of a reform-minded Muslim. Somebody whose faith is very personal and might end them up as Republicans or as Democrats. And last, anyone who identifies. You know, I've been very much against my whole life identifying a faith group within a party because that's the way the Muslim Brotherhood was created. So, you know, listen, I understand it's part of activism. There might not be anything wrong with if they're Republicans that all happen to be Muslim, us getting together and finding out how we can influence policy in a way that helps reform. I don't mind that. But I do think we have to be very careful in which... If our faith identity becomes part of the party politic identity, we are treading very close to what inspires Islamism. Islamism is about a party platform, party identity, that believes that its legal construct should become the national constructs for national identity. So, these discussions are very important as the administration, be it left or right, develops a policy. I hope the Commission on Radical Islam engages Muslim reformers from the left and right, but that are focused on anti-Islamism. I hope, you know, it's fascinating, when I left the U.S. Commission on Religious Freedom, this is a, a commission that was 
a bipartisan commission, and it ensured it was bipartisan by making sure that the majority and minority party nominated individuals to that commission from the Senate and the House, and also from the president. But what that did is it also balkanized our commission, not to be about those who support religious freedom, but to be about sort of left versus right voting and other dysfunction that in many ways paralyzed our commission from moving forward on its primary mission. And when I was leaving, I could not come up with a conservative Muslim to recommend. Not that we identify our successors, but obviously I think about who would be good to have on that commission. I came up with a number, a couple of liberal Muslims, but those would not be ones who would take my position as a Republican appointee, which thus should show that as much as we might complain about the left, there are those on the left, like the Bill Mars of the world, who do bring in the Raheel Razes and Ezra Nomanis to interview them. And there are those on the right who bring in the Zudi Jassers and others, Muslims of the world that are conservative, to talk about anti-Islamism. But we have to be clear on what it means to be a conservative. So... We should welcome, we welcome conservatives as we finish this CPAC this week. But we must be honest about what that means. To the Muslim youth out there, think about the ideology. Understand the history of conservatives in America, just as you understand the history of the socialists, the leftists, the Democratic Party movement in America. Be true to those beliefs, not to ones that you make up as part of an identity movement. And be careful, because if you make up that allegiance as being part of an identity movement of the faith, that's going to put you in also with some global movements that are identity movements in Islamist space. A lot to think about. Look forward to talking with you next week about what what went down at CPAC. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. God bless. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network.